We're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord now has told the people that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees in order for them to be in the kingdom. And he's dealing one by one with several of these laws that the Pharisees and the scribes have interpreted and preached and taught to the people for generations. And now we come to the fourth of these having to do with oaths. So let me read the text beginning there in 33. And you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform in the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply, yes or no, anything more then this comes from evil. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now dealing primarily with the third commandment, but it will also entail features and be related to the ninth commandment. We go back to the text. The law of God is spelled out in the entire Word of God, but the particular commandments are taught in Exodus when they were given at Mount Sinai. Then again, the Levitical priest, those descendants of Levi and of the house of Aaron and his sons that taught the people the law, began to work together in a book that's named after them, the Levite, the Leviticus, and it's a holiness code in which they spell out the particulars of the law and, and give all kinds of applications to it. The book of Numbers is particularly a narrative, although it does have some of the law of God in it. And then the second giving of the law, in addition to Sinai, was when God gave the law of Moses and repeated it to Moses in a grand ceremony on the plains of Moab before they entered the promised land about 38 years later and it's in the book of Deuteronomy and that's where the book of Deuteronomy is is that second uh, pr pronouncement of the law but let's go back to the first couple of places and see where these straightforward simple commandments are first in Exodus chapter 20 Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Third commandment. Now the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then moving to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, the third commandment again. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
And the ninth commandment again out of Deuteronomy 5. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then one of the Levitical code amplifications. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Actually, what's being dealt with here are at least two things. It's quite a bit, actually. Uh, There's just a whole lot here. And once again, I'll recommend to you some homework, and that's to get out your confessions. In fact, you'll find them in the back of your hymnal. And look up the larger catechism and look up the questions and answers. There are 100 and not something, I can't remember the exact numbers, but whatever number it is, 140 or whatever, with the various commandments. And see what is forbidden in each commandment, what makes it a sin. And then what is encouraged or promoted in each commandment. That which makes it full and complete. As the Lord said, he came to fulfill the law and to make it complete. And see there the positive aspects of it. I was going to read it for us as I've done before, but it is so dreadfully long. But that's only because it includes so much good material. So we can just sort of briefly go over kind of what's in view here on these commandments. We are, they're also told in addition negatively in the scriptures not to swear or to use the name of or take an oath by any false god. In other words, you're not supposed to swear according to God falsely or in vain, erroneously, mendaciously, but you are forbidden to take an oath by any other God. Now what's happened in Israel, as you might suspect, and we'll look at it in just a moment, is these scribes and Pharisees have played around with the law of God for so long, and they've insisted that the law of God is your salvation, that you've got to keep the law of God in order to be one of God's people. You're under the obligations to keep the law, and you are but it was a means of salvation. And the only way they could preach a gospel was to slacken it or make it more lax or to restrict its meaning or to reduce its import. You see that? If all you have is a gospel of commandment that says thou shalt, the only good news you have to tell anybody is, well, what it means really is just don't kill anybody in cold blood in broad daylight. And not go into all of the other ramifications of it. But if you have a true gospel to preach. A true gospel says keep the commandment. Take a good look. You've broken the commandment. You cannot keep the commandment apparently. So you're lost. You're under its curse. You're condemned. You have only death. And the gospel says that the one who gave the commandment is a savior. And he has sent his son to keep the commandment 
for you. And furthermore, he, in his work, has kept the commandment for you, but he also has borne in his own body the curse of disobedience to the commandment and paid that penalty so that you are now, by trusting in him and accepting his work for your work, his obedience is your obedience. And the saving grace that's offered in it, you might be saved. You can be saved. You will be saved. That's gospel. But now, let's go back to the law, the commandment. This has to do with oaths and vows. The oath and the vow in the Old Testament is seen as a debt, as an obligation. When you make a vow or swear an oath, you have incurred upon yourself a debt, an obligation. And it must be paid off. Deuteronomy 23 and Numbers 30 talk about any debt or any obligation must be settled. It must be covered. It must be completed. It must be restored. That's one of the great principles of the biblical teaching on the law is that that which is defect must be made right. That which is lost must be found. That which is harmed must be made whole. See, the whole point of the teaching over and over and over in the Bible is to, is to get us ready for the gospel. We are undone. It must be someone to save us. And that's what Christ does. What happens in an oath and a vow is that God is called upon as a witness to what we have said and what we have vowed and what we have uh, obligated ourselves to. And God is the, gar the guarantor that this will be performed. The Lord secures the fidelity of the performance of the, the vow. And it might be summarized this way with respect to the commandments. Every assertion accompanied by an oath must be true. If you say it and swear it, it better be the truth. Every promise accompanied by a vow must be performed. If you say you'll do it, you need to do it. That's the standard of what the oath and the vow and the, the uh, promise is all about. And there are a lot of vows in Scripture. I have listed out, but I can see I don't have time to go through many of them. But let me just alert you to a few. You see them in the, in the Old Testament. The patriarchs made vows. Abraham made a vow. Abraham made a vow. Jacob, they made vows on certain things. And you see that all through the Old Testament, that they, that they, they make a David made a vow. They make vows to the Lord, and then they are obligated to keep them. And, of course, happily they do. In the New Testament, you see Paul. Paul will often call God as his witness about some truth or some assertion that he's about to make. Uh, he says, um, well, I won't go into any because I'll just get carried away. <laughs> you know I will. But let me point out the most beautiful oath anywhere described in the Scriptures and it is always germane to gospel preaching. And that's Hebrews chapter 6. And there the Bible says, beginning, and I'm not going to read the whole text, but written in 13, that God made a vow. God made a covenant. 
And he swore by two immutable, unchangeable things. Number one, he swore by himself because there is no one higher by which he could have sworn. And the Lord in this oath also swore according to his promise that it is impossible for God to lie. So he swore upon his veracity. And the covenant of promise, of course, was the covenant of salvation, the covenant of grace, the covenant given to Abraham that brought forth the seed who is Christ by whom we are all saved. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So God accomplished our salvation by putting it in the form of an oath. He swore he would do it. Let me tell you just for a moment, think about how difficult the Lord had keeping that promise. Look at the life of Abraham. Look at the life of Isaac and Jacob. Look at the life of all the rest of them down through there. For 2,000 years until the coming of Christ, the Lord had to constantly work with these people because there was absolutely nothing on their side of the covenant that was covenant-keeping. And yet he promised that by his own veracity, by his own steadfast love, by his own covenant-keeping character, he would perform salvation and make it come to pass. He had said it, he will surely do it. He will make his word prosper, the prophets preached. And that's what Jesus Christ is all about. The coming of Christ was promise kept, salvation secured. And it was only because God Almighty swore he was going to do it. And he did it and is doing it as he gathers all of those who look to God as Abraham did. And it is accounted to us for righteousness. And as their great ingathering of Israel, of God's people, the seed of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles brought together in that covenant people the remnant of Israel, and the saved of all nations. So God is keeping that particular oath. Let me just mention kind of the practical value, and that's why it's advantageous to read those uh, answers to those questions in the larger catechism. Truth, veracity, uh, having to do with profanity, by the way, profane, two Latin words again. We always have two Latin words, don't we? Pro means before. And phanus means the temple. So it is language that's spoken before the temple. And the temple is the holiest and most sacred place, and that's where the swearing is done. You swear by that which is sacred. And, of course, as we'll see in just a moment, the, the uh, Jewish people of Jesus' day, the rabbis, played a lot of games with that. And Jesus had to confront them on occasion. But, but actually, in, in the created order, this truth, this veracity is actually the basis of several things. It's the basis of the social structure. It is a vow between a man and a woman that establishes the one flesh, which establishes the home, which is for the propagation of the race and the establishment of societal order. And by the way, any attack upon the home and the family, maleness, femaleness, one flesh, for life is an attack upon God's character as God's veracity, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, that which makes him the, the final authentic thing 
How do we know truth? How do we know authenticity? How do we know real? We know real by comparing it to what God is and what he has revealed about himself. Self-revelation that he has made known in his word and even in nature. So that's the basis of the social order. The basis of the economic structure is veracity, truth, oath. That's what the contract is. And it may be a long, drawn-out contract the size of an old Sears and Roebuck catalog that takes a whole uh, bivy of lawyers to be able to cipher, but it could be just a simple word. Either way, it is the, the swearing of the truthfulness of what you will do and what will happen. And often is commanded in a judgment in court is specific performance, which means you do what you said you would do. That's your sentence. That's the judge's ruling. You perform specifically what you said you would do. And that brings us, of course, to it is also the, the basis of the court and justice system we have in our land. We're, a lot of talk about justice these days. And... Uh, very little understanding of justice. Justice is based upon absolute truth. And the very people calling for a type of social justice are the very people that have been telling us for two or three generations that there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as absolutes. And we're teaching a relativism which has already washed out the foundations of a jurisprudence system. The judge operates according to truth. The witnesses are sworn in to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. The, the evidence they're brought in must be beyond falsification and beyond uh, any reasonable doubt as to its authenticity and its truthfulness. One other thing that absolutely depends on truth is scientific investigation and inquiry and study. If we have bogus science where we are studying, but we're studying with an outcome already in mind, or we're researching a subject based upon the grants that we've received and the outcome the grantor would like to have, we've given up truth in science. And there is the basis of industry, discovery, progress, and economic movement forward. Give up truth in that sphere, even though it may just start in the laboratory with fudging a few figures, a few temperatures worldwide over the last 100 years, for example. Wipes out the whole notion of reality in the world and how we can live our lives and what we can base upon, what we are to expect. And I think you see that's pretty obvious. This whole thing is that man in creation is in the image of God and the fundamental one of the fundamental attributes of God is his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his veracity. It is impossible for God to lie. He is the very shape and foundation of truth. Well, what happened, and let me just read for you quickly uh, here. I won't have time to elaborate on it too much, but I think you can see what's happened. I just wanted to, to uh, read the actual text. It's kind of interesting. Um, This is the Lord when he's dealing with these very scribes and Pharisees. Uh, he says, you sit in Moses' seat. In other words, you're doing the interpretation of Moses' law, the things we spoke of earlier. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the giving of the law. And he pronounces upon these men 
in his final days, after dealing with them for years in all kinds of ways over all kinds of subjects, the Lord simply, as an Old Testament prophet would, pronounces upon them a woe. And here's one of the woes found in 23rd chapter of Matthew. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Can you see the silliness there? In other words, there's all kind of prevarications. There's slipping and sliding that can be done in daily activity. If someone doesn't know the latest nuance of these things, they can easily be fooled. And the Lord says, this is the way you understand the law? Is this the way you understand oaths that you can swear by this but not by that? You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift or the sacrifice that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything in it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. It was all of these oaths are binding. There's no place where you can cross your fingers. There's no base you can run to. There's no king's ex. These, these oaths are are binding. Jesus even mentioned in our text about swearing by your head. That is a, a Gentile thing. That's a Greco-Roman idea that you swear by your, your head is your life. I swear by my own life. And that is also a, a form of oath-taking that the Lord says you just need to leave aside. Now the practical matter is that, that all of the um, teaching of Christ is that we need to keep our swearing simple. And here's how simple you can keep it. No swearing at all. No swearing at all. That is the kind of swearing the Lord pronounces the woe upon. The conversational swearing. The casual. Taking the name of the Lord in vain. The empty and the false oaths. Have you ever heard people that can't even talk without swearing? You know, it's, it's, I'm not even going to say it, but it's by this and by that and so forth. And they, just everything they say. They must have no veracity at all because they seem like they have to swear on every little statement. They will swear to you and use either a profanity, the name of the Lord or Christ or something, or they'll use a vulgarity. They'll use a, a, some, some vulgar term. Either way, they're seeking to beef up and they cannot even describe something without using one of these vulgarities or profanities as a series of adjectives. If you listen to them very long, and you see this in the movies some too, with some of the dialogue, they have like three words in their vocabulary. And they use those three words over and over and over as adjectives, nouns, verbs, pronouns, in every which way. And you understand what they're saying. But it is, it is that kind of language that the Lord is telling us to leave off, to leave off the lying, the propaganda. And he says these things proceed from the evil one. And that's an important point because the evil one, the evil in our text is actually the evil one. The Lord talks a lot about Satan and his wiles, and he's the father of lies. It is Satan in the garden that started this whole idea of twisting and warping 
that which the Lord has said. Has the Lord said? And then there's a question and there's a, there's a warp to it. There's a twist on reality. There's a perversion to authenticity. There's a warping of reality. And that's what happens. And so goes the language. So goes people's understanding. And so goes the culture. They, they wash down the same river together. Language changing. Terms changing. What is a woman? What is a recession? We, we, just, we, we have to work on these definitions all the time. And that's where the carefulness comes in to keep it straight, simple, and plain. Yes, no. One of the worst things you can do these days is to think, they say, in categories of black and white. That's where you start. You don't even know what a shade of gray is until you understand what black is and what white is. Then you can understand the shades of gray. The nuances, the percentages is more darker gray or lighter gray, whiter gray or blacker gray. There's got to be a starting place, and that's what the Lord wants us to get back to. It's interesting how pagan cultures get completely, completely off base with respect to the language in denial of all reality. Lying, propaganda, exaggeration, prevarication. It's interesting, it says, if you say more than this, how much language is exaggeration? hyperbole, overspeak, lying, adding to, putting more into the, the uh, facts that, that need to be there. And that's what happens if we don't clean up our language, bring it back, put it to where it stands on the solid rock of truth at all times. Let me just give you one example as we talk about being simply truthful. When Jesus was being tried, he stood before the high priest early in the morning there in that trial and Jesus wasn't speaking. And the high priest demanded that he speak. In fact, Caiaphas said, I adjure you to speak. He ordered him. He put him under penalty of perjury if he didn't speak. And he says, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Straightforward question. And you know what Jesus' answer was? He said, you said that. You've laid out the groundwork. You've given me the two identities that you're asking me to confirm. Let me say to you this. You will see him sitting at the right hand of God, coming in the clouds of glory. Some people say Jesus never claimed to be divine. He claimed divinity on two counts right there. When he said he was sitting at the right hand of God, he was quoting Psalm 110 as to his sonship and his deity. When he talked about coming in the clouds of glory, Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes. A direct, clear, simple, unambiguous answer to a question under oath. That's how our Lord handled it. 